0: Well, as you can tell from the scripture reading this morning, I won't be preaching a sermon specifically addressing the things that happened in our nation this week. Um, I was looking back and thinking, and I, I looked on our church website to make sure it's still there, but, but back in, on September 11th, two th- or September 11th, 2011, almost 10 years ago, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, I preached a sermon called The Throne Above the Tragedy a reflection on Psalm 93 as it applies to national tragedies in our country. And I would stand by, I think, everything I preached then. So if you all would like to get what I would think and what I might preach on a situation like this, you can find that on our church website. Again, it's called The Throne Above the Tragedy. It's September 11th, 2000, 2011. And uh, I listened to the first five or ten minutes last night, and I thought, okay, I think that would be a comforting word for our people if they, if you all would like something like that this week you can just look it up and listen to it and i hope it's a blessing to you well we are in the middle of a, a sermon series through the seven letters we're going to be covering as you know the entire book of revelation but these days we're walking through the seven letters to the seven churches one at a time and we've come to the fourth letter this morning that jesus writes to the church at Thyatira or Thyatira. It's pronounced different ways. I'm going to pronounce it Thyatira uh, this morning. I could be completely wrong, but I'm going to go with it and trust that's the the case anyway, if it's not. Well, let's talk about tolerance for a second. Just last year, an exchange took place between two Hollywood actors on the very question of gay marriage and the church. Ellen Page called out Chris Pratt in a tweet stating the following, If you are a famous actor and you belong to an organization that hates a certain group of people, don't be surprised if someone simply wonders why it's not addressed. Being anti-LGBTQ is wrong. There aren't two sides. The damage it is caused is severe. Full stop, sending love to all. Well, in the tweet, Page specifically indicted Pratt for his membership in what was alleged to be an anti-LGBTQ church. The church that was in question is Zoe Church in Los Angeles, which is a church in association with the Hillsong Movement. There can be no question that Page not only targeted Pratt, but took direct aim at any organization or church that holds to anything even remotely connected to a biblically-informed sexual ethic. Well, Pratt did issue a response. In which he stated the following. It has recently been suggested that I belong to a church which hates a certain group of people and is infamously anti-LGBTQ. Nothing could be further from the truth. I go to a church that opens their doors to absolutely everyone. Despite what the Bible says about my divorce, my church community was there for me every step of the way, never judging, just gracefully accompanying me on my walk. They helped me tremendously, offering their love and support. It's what I have seen them do for others on countless occasions, regardless of sexual orientation, race, or gender. Now, he's going to go on and say a few more things, but I just want to stop right there and say, that's great. Right? Because all that he is saying so far is absolutely good and right. I mean, our churches are meant to be places that are marked by reception and grace and welcome to people of all backgrounds, right? We don't want to be a community of judgment where people are scrutinizing one another's lives to look for evidence of sin and failure and then harshly judging them for what we see there, a lot of nitpicking and ruthlessness. Nor do we want to be a community of condemnation where people are actively looking for each other's flaws and foibles and being hard-hearted and compassionless when we spot them. Nor do we want to be a community of resentfulness where people are harboring bitterness and are slow to repent when they've sinned against others and even slower to forgive when people have sinned against them. We don't want to be a community of selfishness where each person's looking out primarily for his own interests rather than the interests of others. No, but we want to be as... Pratt describes the church to be a community of acceptance where people accept each other and are very slow to criticize. If there's a great scrutinizing going on, it's going to be us scrutinizing our own lives, right? Rather than each other's. We want to be a community of compassion where people still see each other's flaws and foibles, but we respond with warm hearts and with compassion and patience. And a community of forgiveness where people are quick to come to others and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And where they are quick to grant that forgiveness when asked for it and a community of generosity where it's normal for us as members to experience the generosity of others, whether that's the generosity of money or time or attention or anything else that someone might need. We want to be a community that Ray Ortland says is safe to grow in. What kind of community is that? It's a community that he defines as gospel plus safety plus time. He says... Gospel plus safety plus time, it's what everyone needs. A lot of gospel, a lot of safety, and a lot of time. He says, gospel, that's good news for people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Multiple exposures to the gospel, constant immersion in the gospel, wave upon wave of grace and truth. Also, we need safety. A non-accusing environment, no embarrassing anyone, no cornering anyone, no shaming, but respect and sympathy and listening and understanding so that people can exhale and open up and unburden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. And then time, no pressure no even self-imposed pressure, no deadlines on growth. Urgency, yes, but not hurry, because no one changes quickly. A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level. God is patient. That's what our churches must be, gentle environments of gospel and safety and time. It's where we're finally free to grow. So amen to all of that. Now here's what Pratt goes on to say, which is a little bit more problematic. He goes on to respond to this tweet where he was accused of being anti-LGBTQ and involved in an anti-LGBTQ church by saying, "...my faith is important to me, but no church defines me or my life. And I'm not a spokesman for any church or any group of people. My values define who I am. We need less hate in this world, not more. I am a man who believes that everyone is entitled to love who they want, free from the judgment of their fellow man." Now, in 2017, Carl Lentz, who has recently stepped down from ministry after an affair, once served as pastor of the New York-based Hillsong Church, missed several opportunities to clearly express a biblical view of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. In an interview with CNN, he gave a non-answer when he said, it's not my place to tell anyone how they should live, that's their journey. Now, Pratt claimed that no church defines me, According to the Bible, however, the church does define you and me. Whereas Pratt denies that his church defines him, the scriptures teach that the church founded by Jesus Christ is the family of the living God, bought by the blood of Christ, and covenant together for the cause of the gospel. That's the vision of a biblical church. Such a church, then, is bound together in obedience to Christ absolutely defines that member's life. We can't separate... Christ's gospel from Christ's people. Moreover, when Lentz's ambiguity in his 2017 CNN interview, whether intentionally or not, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt here, I don't think he intentionally meant to undermine the gospel in any way, but he did undermine the clear and glorious identity of the church of Jesus Christ when he described the church as a body with no authority or no responsibility to summon its members to Christian discipleship. Now, of course, we're not talking about some sort of cultic thing where leaders tell their members what to do disregarding anything in the Bible. No, we as leaders are under this word just as all of us members are. And we are not to go a step beyond anything that's revealed here. But when it comes to issues as clear in Scripture as sexual morality, Christ has spoken clearly. And Christ has called his disciples to clear obedience to those commands. This is the essence of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what the job of the church is, to teach people what they're supposed to do in obedience to Christ. Discipleship does make objective demands on our conduct, virtue, and morality. The God revealed in Holy Scripture does issue commands to us as his people, right? 1 John 5, 3 For this is love that we keep his commandments. Where you find a church, you find a community of believers that's striving for holy obedience to God. Conversely, a church that doesn't tell people how to live in obedience to Christ and hold them accountable to such obedience is in danger of losing their status as a church, at least in the eyes of Christ. That's clear in these seven letters. Now, one more qualification before we get into the text tolerance is such a misunderstood concept in our world. I think a lot of people take tolerance and just use it as a blanket thing that covers a whole lot of things when we need more nuance and careful thinking when it comes to the issue of tolerance. So let me give you four kinds of tolerance, okay? There are different kinds of tolerance, right? And I just want to give you four and make sure we're clear here on what we're talking about when we talk about tolerance because this whole letter that Jesus addresses to the church in Thyatira is about tolerance, and what they are not to tolerate, and what they are to tolerate. So we need to get clear on what we're called to tolerate and what we're not called to tolerate, because we are called to tolerate lots of stuff, but not everything. So when it comes to legal tolerance in culture, should people have the right to worship who they want, even if we don't agree? Of course. We legally tolerate that. Why? Because we understood, brothers and sisters, Christian faith can't be coerced It can't be coerced into people. They're born from above. You don't legally coerce people into obedience to the Christian faith. You can't pass a law that requires people to love Jesus. We don't impose it. We propose it, but we don't impose it. We don't seek a legislative discipleship program to Jesus. We're not Scientologists or any other false religion or cult as the law of the land to make all other beliefs illegal. So if someone comes along and asks Christian, do you tolerate other religions? We should say yeah, in culture, of course. We defend religions and ideologies and spiritualities and perspectives that we disagree with because we believe in the marketplace of ideas that we, if we throw Christianity in the mix truth will always win. We aren't afraid of other beliefs We know what the truth is. We have a man who left the grave. Why should you be afraid of that? If there's a mosque that gets built right here, we should support it. Why wouldn't we? Do we believe in religious liberty? Absolutely. Social tolerance in the community. There's another tolerance that we should accept. What about other people who disagree with you? Yes. We should be friends and good neighbors to all. We should show social tolerance in our community. So when people post things that we don't agree with or like, we should be able to tolerate them. Secondary theological tolerance in the church. Let's move into the church now. We've talked about we should legally tolerate things in the culture. We should socially tolerate things in the culture. But when it comes into the church, what about secondary theological tolerance? Yes. Yes. When it comes to secondary or tertiary matters, we tolerate each other. We, we give space for each other to disagree. We don't all have to see the same thing about everything. We need to be united on the things that the Bible says the church is to be united around, which, if you read the New Testament letters, is Christ and him crucified. And then Paul has a lot to say about the way we navigate secondary and tertiary issues in the church. But what about heretical and immoral tolerance in the church? What about grievous departures from Christian ethics that are clearly revealed? And what about heresy surrounding main order, first level issues? There is no tolerance for those things in the church. The Christian church welcomes everyone, but we welcome everyone to change. We're all changing. We're all committed to changing, to crucifying the flesh, with its passions and desires, however that flesh manifests itself in our lives, and we've all got it. None of us gets to come in and make peace with our sin. Nobody. No matter what your sin struggle is. Nobody. If you're a raving gossip, you have to crucify it. If you're a habitual liar, you got to crucify it. If you're addicted to forms of sexual immorality, you have to crucify it. Nobody gets a pass. If you believe that Jesus wasn't God, you gotta crucify that. <laughs> if you believe that Christ isn't the only way of salvation, you gotta crucify that. If you don't believe the Bible's the inerrant word of God, you've got to crucify that. It shows up in morality and theology. Repentance is required. So we all we we say, come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. Right? That's for all of us. That's for all this. So what it means, because we've, because by voluntarily joining ourselves to a Christian church, we're saying, "I want to follow Jesus, and I want you to hold me accountable to that, according to what He says, not according to what we think." So, that's the category of tolerance that we're talking about that that, that we need to say no to, is the heretical and immoral tolerance in the church, and that's what Jesus is rebuking here this morning in the church in Thyatira. So all that out of the way, I know that was a rather long introduction, I apologize for that, but I just feel like it's important to set these things up because we get into things like this and we think, wow, this is pretty judgmental. We don't realize there's a specific form of tolerance that Jesus is calling this church to not have, and he calls us to not have it as well. So this morning we're going to explore Revelation chapter 2 verses 18 to 29 and talk about five truths that help us avoid the danger of tolerating immorality in the church which is what the subject is in these verses. Number one, Jesus calls the shots in the church. Number one, Jesus calls the shots in the church. Not a pastor, not a member, Jesus. And Jesus calls the shots through his word. So we see here in verse 18, Jesus giving the description to this church, setting them up for what he's about to say to them. As Jesus does in all of these letters, he gives a little preface that describes who he is as he's talking to them to remind them that he has the authority to tell them these things. So he says in verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now this is the only use of the phrase, Son of God, in Revelation. However, it is one of John's favorite designations for Jesus in his Gospel. But this title is meant to underscore the majesty and the authority of Jesus, perhaps in opposition to the so-called glory of the Roman Emperor, who was also, as you probably know, was called a Son of God. But what's being said here is that Jesus, in opposition to Apollo and Zeus and other Roman gods, by the way, Apollo was the prominent Roman god that was worshipped in the city of Thyatira, and Jesus is saying, I am the Son of God. I am the true deity. I am the one who is speaking to you. Notice how he's described. He has eyes like a flame of fire. These eyes like fire are too pure to look on evil. He won't tolerate it. And then he has feet of bronze, which are too holy, as we saw last week, to walk among wickedness. He will crush and destroy those who persist unrepentantly in those things. So, eyes that are too pure to look on evil, feet that are too holy to walk among wickedness, the eternal majestic Son of God. This is the one that's speaking to the church, making it clear that Jesus is the one who calls the shots. Number two... Jesus recognizes how far we've come. Jesus recognizes how far we've come. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. Do you love it? Jesus knows everything. He knows exactly what this church is, and he doesn't walk into them and say, hey, i got a few things to criticize about you real fast. No, he says, I know how far you've come. He says, I know your works. Now, we've heard that phrase before in Revelation. That's kind of a junk drawer term where Jesus is going to throw a lot of specific description in. He says, I know your works, your love. That is your affection for God and for other people. I know your faith. That is your trusting reliance on me. I know your service. That is your acts of mercy and compassion to believers and the lost. I know your patient endurance, how you've been steady and faithful and resilient in the face of persecution. And this is the amazing thing. He says, and your latter works have exceeded the first. He says, there's been growth and development and progress in your church, and I notice it. You guys are moving forward. In many ways, the church at Thyatira is a model church. It was better off than the church at Ephesus, remember? The church at Ephesus had the deeds and the works But they didn't have the love, right? But among the deeds and the works that the church at Thyatira has is love. Jesus says, you're a busy, active church that loves me. You're full of service and patience and faith, and your latter works exceed the first. Now let's camp out there on that phrase for just a second. The church in Thyatira was growing, not necessarily numerically, but spiritually They were growing in Christ-likeness. They had learned that the Christian life is one of growth and development and progress and spiritual increase. Listen, brothers and sisters, merely maintaining the moral status quo, either individually or as a church, is inadequate. Their early diligence, the early diligence of these Christians in ministry and in mercy toward others had only increased over time. Hardship didn't dim their faith. Familiarity with Christ didn't breed contempt. So where are we today in terms of Christian growth and zeal and love for Jesus in comparison with where we were when we first became a Christian? Could Jesus look at your life? Could he look at my life and say, your latter works exceed the first? Think back to your early days of your Christian life, perhaps the first year or so of your conversion. Do you remember the zeal for God and the fascination with things biblical that you felt? Think back to how you wanted to talk about Jesus a little more and the courage that you displayed in sharing your faith with unsaved family members and friends. Or think back to the time and energy that you expended to be eager to serve Jesus in whatever way you could, through prayer and service and ministry. Bring to mind how devoted you were to reading and studying Scripture. Is that all fresh in your mind? Got the picture? Now compare it to where you are today. Has your affection for God's people and God Himself grown cold? Are you filled with doubts and fears rather than faith and confidence that you had at first? Have you found excuses not to give generously? Do you find yourself rationalizing your absence from corporate worship or nurturing bitterness toward another believer? Do you spend as much time today in reading and memorizing and meditating on Scripture as you did in your early days as a believer? This is where we learn from the church of Thyatira and where Jesus would instruct us from their example. The Christian life is an ever-upward trek marked by many setbacks and restarts and repentance and fresh beginnings and toils and snares. We're not talking about a smooth, upward thing. We're talking about a bumpy trajectory that's moving upward most of the time. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. An ever upward trek toward greater heights of holiness, greater pursuit of love, greater theological understanding. See, brothers and sisters, being born again is only the beginning. It's only the beginning. It's not an end. It's an inauguration, not a consummation. We've got a long way to go. Appealing to one's initial zeal as an excuse for shifting into spiritual cruise control doesn't set well with Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm really grateful for how you used to love me, if, you don't, if you're not really pursuing that love now. And so Jesus says their latter works exceeded the first. May we imitate them in that, in pursuing a growing, developing Christian life as well. Number three. Jesus corrects those who tolerates what he doesn't. Jesus corrects those who tolerates what he doesn't. This is a striking word in our culture today, but there are some things that Jesus does not amen. <laughs> that is, he does not add his stamp of approval to. He does not say, yes, I agree with that. And although the church at Thyatira was commended for their increase in growth and service, there is a toleration in their church of falsehood and moral compromise that Jesus does not tolerate. He says in verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, who's Jezebel? Well, similar to what we saw last week with Balaam, this is a reference to Old Testament Activity, it's a a, a reference to someone in the Old Testament. We know from 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31, that Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, who married Ahab, the king of Israel. And largely because of her influence, similar to what Balaam was doing as a false prophet, Jezebel sought to combine the worship of God with the worship of Baal. Because her husband, after all, was influenced in that direction, and she was as well. It is said of her husband in 1 Kings 16.33 that he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. That's Ahab's testimony, or the the testimony of the Lord about Ahab. Hardly an endearing legacy. Jezebel was responsible for killing of Naboth and confiscation of his vineyard for her husband in 1 Kings 21. Jezebel sought the death of all the prophets of Israel in 1 Kings 18 and 2 Kings 9. And she even came close in 1 Kings 19 to taking out Elijah himself. She was involved in the occult. She murdered God's prophets. And she manipulated the citizens of Israel and her husband. Her death came as a result of being thrown from a window where she was then trampled by a horse. When an attempt was made to recover her body for burial, it was discovered that the only thing left was her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands. According to 2 Kings 9:36 and 37, we read this. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the ter- territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. She wouldn't even be recognizable. Now, although the first Jezebel had been dead over a thousand years, her spirit had been alive and well, and it showed up in the church at Thyatira. The complaint of the Lord lies in an unhealthy degree of toleration similar to the acts of Jezebel. Now, whereas some have thought that this is one individual lady in view, like there was a lady in the church named Jezebel, by the way, parents, don't name your kids Jezebel. I know none of you have been tempted to do that. But just for future sake, not a good name. Okay, not a good name. But So, so I, 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 have, I, I find it difficult to believe with the symbolic nature of the book of Revelation that Jezebel is a specific woman in the church who is teaching these things. Could be. Okay, could be. Some commentators take it that way, and you're certainly welcome to take that interpretation as well. This is, not, this is a very secondary or third-level issue here about whether or not we think Jezebel is a real person or not. Of course, she's a real person in 1 Kings 16. Maybe not a real person in Revelation 2. But the point is is that her spirit is alive and well. She is influencing the church. Her spirit, now I'm not saying it's the spirit of Jezebel, okay? Like the literal spirit of Jezebel. But it's the idea that just like Balaam taught these things and did these things, so the Pergamum church was being succumbing to these things. So just like Jezebel did these kind of things, Jesus is saying, hey church, you're behaving like Jezebel behaved. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. Now, how had the church in Thyatira been captured by the Jezebel spirit? Well, they'd become indifferent and started to tolerate sexual immorality. Listen, brothers and sisters, sexual immorality in the church is not an indifferent matter. There are seven or eight vice lists in the New Testament from both Jesus and Paul, and in every single one of those lists of vices, sexual immorality is included, often at the head of the list. And sometimes mentioned in more than one way. Christians can't tolerate all things because God does not tolerate all things. We can't give unqualified and unconditional affirmation to every belief and behavior. As parents, we understand this. We are not good parents if we give unqualified affirmation to every behavior that we see in our children. We see them playing in the middle of a very busy street. Do you say, well, who am I to judge? Your child says, mommy, I'm going to take a bath. You say, good. And then they say, with a toaster. Well, to each his own. I want you to grow up and think for yourself. Guess what? Your child ain't growing up. (laughs) They're going to die when that toaster is dropped in that tub, or at least be severely shocked. So how did this happen in the church then? Why was Thyatira tolerating sexual immorality? Well, frustratingly, we aren't told. But we could make some possible assumptions, okay? Let's just let our sanctified imagination go a little bit. Maybe they liked the teachers that were teaching it. They were powerful personalities. They were fun to listen to. They had a presence about them. They were smart. They were influential. They were movers and shakers. Brothers and sisters, we need to beware that impressiveness, giftedness, abilities, and vision make zero difference in the kingdom of God. They are not what God evaluates, and so many churches base that on who's preaching and teaching and leading them. Well, they're gifted. They dress nice. Look at that CrossFit body. Look at that haircut and those glasses. Look at that trendy outfit. You think Jesus cares about any of that stuff? That's worldliness. And Lord willing, next year we'll preach through 1 Corinthians and confront all that BS head on. Because that's garbage. Garbage. And it's hurting Christ's church. By the way, BS does not mean what you think it means. It means baloney stuff. Just wanted to be clear about that, okay? It means baloney stuff. How's that for... <laughs> the greater the gifts, the greater the dangers. Okay? The greater the gifts, the greater the dangers. We need leaders who say, Lord, grant me character that's greater than my gifts and humility that's greater than my influence. Maybe they thought her teaching was somehow legitimate in the church. Maybe their doctrine was attractive and seductive. And at first it seemed insightful and maybe deep and perceptive. Ooh, never thought about that before. Huh. She had a way of opening the scriptures in a way that was new and exciting, or they did, whoever the teachers were. Maybe their teaching appealed to their sin. They said things like, Hey, you can follow Jesus. You don't have to change in this way. That's good. Maybe they were fearful of confronting her or confronting the teachers who were teaching this thing. If people were behaving like Jezebel, they didn't want to say something for fear that it would offend her or her family. Perhaps the most likely explanation is that their love was undiscerning and it was blindly affirming to people. Their love had turned into some sort of permissiveness, but they had tolerated false teaching and immoral behavior, two things that God was not tolerant of. So Jesus didn't pat them on the back and say, way to go, I applaud you for being so open-minded. Love does not equal unconditional affirmation of everything. Love equals affirmation of what God affirms in the church. So what should have been done? 1 Corinthians 5 should have been done where Paul writes, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to say, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. So he's not saying, hey, don't hang out with sexual sinners. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, who calls himself a Christian, if he's guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or an idolater, or reviler, or drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those, is it not inside the church whom you are to judge? See, there's biblical tolerance. Saying, listen, don't speak about all the sin out there. Speak about church in in here. This is what you're to be concerned about. Not what's going on out there and how hot you get about what's going on out there. Talk about biblical faithfulness in here. Verse 13 says, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now notice, Jesus' patience and compassion. He gives them time to repent. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. This is such mercy. Jesus does not have a hair trigger when it comes to judgment. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The grace and love of God shines through here when Jesus says, do not immediately, when you discover something like this, kick them out of the church. No, Matthew 18 teaches the process by which we're to follow. We go to them individually. If they they refuse to repent, take two with you. They don't listen to them, tell it to the church. Jesus is faulting the church for allowing this to go on and on and on and on and on, and on unaddressed. From Jesus' perspective, they should have excluded her by now. When churches fail to exclude the unrepentant, committed, who are committed to clear violations of Christian ethics and biblical morality and Jesus' commands, then they bear part of the responsibility for the, the sins that provoked the Jezebels in their midst. Number four, Jesus gives consequences to those who refuse to repent. Jesus gives consequences to those who refuse to repent. Look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mine and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." The result of the refusal to repent is going to be judgment on this church. Jesus says, I'm going to throw you on a sick bed. Now, that's probably metaphorical, but it could be literal in the sense that he's just saying you will suffer consequences as a result of this that will be physical in nature. Now, this is, shouldn't be new to us in Scripture. Those of you who are in Pastor Keith or one of the other Sunday school classes kids, you heard read about Ananias and Sapphira this morning. Right, The Lord did something very similar to them and judged them immediately for their sin. Right? In that case, he, he took their lives because they lied to the Holy Spirit. But we also see this in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27-32. through 32, where the, Because the Corinthians were taking the Lord's Supper in an improper manner, Jesus, the, the Apostle Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there will be physical consequences for this. Some of you will lose your lives. Notice what he says. Whoever therefore eats, and drink, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is why. This is why. This is why, he says. Clearly tying the reason for their illness to their improper use of the Lord's Supper. Now, this doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that anytime we suffer physically that there's some hidden sin that we're not repenting of, okay? This is clear, abject sinfulness. They are getting drunk at communion. <laughs> That's a problem! Just like tolerating incest in the church is a problem. I mean, this is not... You know, I got angry at my spouse this week. I disciplined my children in anger. I was lazy. I, you know, something like that. Or even I committed, you know, certain sins. It's not that. It's this flagrant, ongoing disregard for the Lord and his ways. And then notice verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Fifthly and finally, Jesus graciously rewards all those who hold on to him and reject false teaching. First of all, look at verse 24. But for the rest of you in Thyatira, that's good. That's good news. The rest of you, that means not all this church was ransacked by this, as is the case with most of this. Jesus comes to these churches and say, hey, I know most of you aren't doing this. There's a slice of you who are. We need to take care of that. But notice he says, the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching who don't believe that you can commit flagrant, unrepentant sexual immorality and still be okay with Christ, who don't hold to that teaching, what does he say to them? Again, verse 24, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast. So those who haven't followed the false prophetess, and her lifestyle and teaching, which was evidently called the deep things of Satan. Now, I wonder if that was the title of their Sunday school class. Come to hear about the deep things of Satan. I don't know, but it was probably called the deep things of God, more likely. More likely and then people got in there and realized this was satanic. But Jesus actually re- reports what they're actually doing, which is the deep things of Satan. They're being under the control of the evil one. We're told twice that the synagogue of the Jews was called the synagogue of Satan in Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9. So it could be Jewish Christians who are, are Jewish false teachers, but I'm quite certain that Jews wouldn't have seen it that way just as the prophetess wouldn't have seen her teaching that way. So we see here that he says to them, listen, I don't lay any other burden on you other than to resist this. That's the Lord's kindness. He's saying, Look, I'm not demanding too much here. I'm not saying you got to do this and 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 this. Turn the page. This and this and this and this. He's saying, Just do this. I'm not laying any other burden on you. Just deal with this. Similar to what we read in Acts 15, verses 28 and 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. (laughs) The apostle's summary is exactly what Jesus summarizes. Listen, these aren't big issues. They're big issues if we ignore them, but they're not difficult things to understand and grasp. Keep yourself from idolatry. Keep yourself from immorality. Did you know that's the Ten Commandments in a nutshell? What is the first table? Idolatry. What's the second table? Immorality. That's what he's telling. He's just keep yourself from the big things. Keep yourself from the things God has clearly revealed to be wrong. And then verse 25, he says, just hold fast to this. Endure until Jesus comes. Believers will reign with Jesus when he comes again. We're going to overcome in this life. And to overcome means that we stand strong against tolerating immorality by stopping tolerating it. So he says to them in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, you endure, you resist this You'll share in my glory and my rule. You will sit down with me on my judgment throne and join with me in trying, condemning, and consigning to judgment the, my enemies and all those of my church. Jesus offers us, listen friends, the best position, the best place, with the best person. That's what, that's what we're rewarded. The best position, the best place, the best person. Notice he says in verse 20, 28, I will give him the morning star. You know who the morning star is? Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So brothers and sisters, let nothing keep you from him. I will have him forever, no matter what it costs me. It will cost me my sin. That's a price I'm willing to pay. Are you willing to let all of your sin go to have the bright and morning star? May we be that way. Nothing's going to keep me from him. If he speaks and puts his finger on something in my life and he says, let it go, I'm going to let it go because I want the bright and morning star forever. Well, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to you for giving us words of conviction and words of compassion Lord Jesus, thank you for giving such clear leadership to your churches, through your spirit, by your word. Thank you that you have given us the inspired letters to the churches of the first century, that we can continue to be instructed by them, and we can continue to be led by their instruction. We want to put ourselves and our church under this word We want to recognize our own proclivities and sins and repent and turn back to you. Lord Jesus, we want to be in the best place. We want to be in the best position. We want to be with the best person. We don't want anything to get in the way. We pray that we would help one another to that end, that just as in as much as you've called your church to be a community of those who care for one another and seek each other's spiritual well-being and look after each other, we pray that we would do that for each other, all of us, being concerned for each other's spiritual development, not in some microscopic, cultic, bizarre way, but just in a clear, faithful way to your word, saying, hey, look to Jesus. We love you. We want you to look to Christ. We don't want you to abandon him. Please give up your sin. Lord, may we do that for ourselves. May we do that for each other, knowing that this is going to be the battle of our lives till we're with you. And thank you that you've called us into the church to help us with these battles. Thank you, Jesus, that we're not alone. Thank you that we're not alone, that we have our brothers and sisters who love us and will pursue us with your word, with prayer, with kindness, with firm rebuke if needed, but Lord, who will love us because they love our souls deep down and they want us with you and they want to be with us forever. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your correction. Give us grace to hear and obey what the Spirit is saying to the churches. For we ask these things in the name of our mighty King Jesus. Amen.